0: Okay, we're talking about practice. This is two thousand two. Allen Iverson in one of the most uh, famous sports press conferences, uh, where he, his practice habits were brought into question. He's showing up late or not coming to practices. In that press conference, he drops the word "practice" twenty-two times. Uh, we're talking about. Practice, and uh, that's what we're doing around here. Often practicing the way of Jesus, apprenticing one's life to Jesus, to be with him, to become like him, and to do the things that he did. We're talking about practice, and so throughout the year, we want to have practice series where we'll we'll spend a few weeks looking at a particular practice, so we can delve into it, uh, turn it over a bit together, and and hopefully find more opportunities to practice uh, in a more deep way. So we're in the middle of a three-week series on the practice of worship. And I wanna ask a really simple question. What is going on here on a Sunday morning? What's, What's happening? What do we assume is happening in this space among these chairs around this table? what are we doing and perhaps more importantly what is god doing what is happening in the listening and the standing and the sitting and the reading and the looks exchanged across the circle and coming to the table and the bread and the wine and the the strange mixture of breath and lungs and vocal cords and heart and mind in a song what is happening in all of this is there anything else happening in these actions or alongside these movements or maybe even in spite of these. What is happening? One of the best stories, I think, in scripture is Genesis 28, where Jacob has this great line. He says, surely God was in this place and I didn't perceive it. I think it's easy to be in that Jacob-like space. Surely God was in this place and I just didn't clue in. Like, it is entirely possible for God's work to be on display, for God to be active, for God's presence to be imminent, and for me to be clueless and oblivious. That's That's totally possible. That's part of the human condition. Surely God was in this place, and I did not perceive it. And so worship, then, I think, is growing in attentiveness, learning how we might more and more perceive it. I like how Eugene Just call him first name. Eugene uh, puts it, Worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. One of my other all-time favorite worship quotes is by Annie Dillard. She says this, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill us Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. No one, I don't think. Okay, good. We don't want to f- anyone to feel awkward. Uh, ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Maybe there's more going on in these moments than I often realize. Week after week, coming to the Japanese hall, gathering around the table. Might there be more? Might there there be the possibility that God was in this place and I didn't perceive it? Might, Might there be new ways to perceive? So... One sentence summary here of what I want to look at this morning is that in worship, we are being both hosted by and hosting the presence of God. I want to look at a text with you that um, I, I found really interesting in the last couple of weeks. This is Luke 7. If you have a chair Bible, let's go to Luke 7 <laughs> with the page numbers conveniently laid out for you. That's, my, that's, that's on me, not on, not on Jillian. That's, I put those question marks in there. Okay, so uh, you're on your own. Find it, please, in Luke 7, verse 36. So when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Let's just pause there for a moment. One One of the things that got Jesus killed was his table fellowship. It was absolutely part of the deal with him. Uh, he kept hanging out with the wrong people, and the wrong people, the definition of that, just kept shifting. So sometimes he was with a tax collector, was like someone who was complicit in the empire's uh, oppression and occupation. And sometimes he's with the laborers, the working class. sometimes he's with the white-collar folk. Uh, previously, in Luke's Gospel, he's he's talking with a Roman centurion. He's always having these meals, but with the wrong people. And and I'm sure if anyone was keeping track, and and in a way the Gospels do keep track, but if anyone was keeping track in real time, this this would have been so frustrating to try and just note what we could call the subversive sociality of Jesus. It was just a moving target all the time. Why? Because it doesn't matter who you are, what your tribe is, what your group is. Jesus keeps moving in and out of those groups. He keeps hanging out with the wrong people. He keeps crossing lines and moving on to the other team. It's like, wait, does he have a team? Is he on? I thought he was on. No, he's on their team. Wait, what? Is there teams? I don't know. He's frustrating. He's a moving target. The subversive sociality of Jesus is revealed in who he hangs out with at tables. And so tonight, tonight's dinner company, text says, is a Pharisee, a person who's part of the religious establishment. That's where Jesus is. There's a contrast that Luke is going to note here. So let's keep going. Verse 37 we've got a Pharisee, and then a woman in the town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisees who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is that she is a sinner. So who is this? The, the label keeps coming up, a sinner. I, 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 I love reading uh, really conservative commentators. This was one who said, Pro- she was probably one who fraternizes with Gentiles for economic purposes. Okay, so, so there's, there's, a label, there's a label here for this woman. And that's mostly what they're seeing, according to this label. Not her name, not her story, not the pain, not her, sinner. That's what they see. And in fact, they're troubled because Jesus doesn't see like they see. Pharisee says, if, I mean, this really calls into question Jesus's legitimacy because he's not seeing like we see. Now, Jesus, in just classic way, he addresses the guest and he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And Jesus goes into a little mini, like a micro parable, little story, just to zoom out so that Simon might be able to be at least a, a, a little less defensive. And, and so Jesus comes at Simon on the slant, and he says, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so... He forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You judge correctly, Jesus said. Tells the story, lets it hang, and then he does this incredible move. Verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Uh, the, The questions that Jesus asks... Do you see this woman? And the answer, of course, is that Simon hasn't. No one has. Not the way that Jesus is seeing. And to this point in the evening, there's been a meal, theological discussion. The men are all involved in. They're reclining. And the woman here is an intruder. An uninvited guest who comes, stands behind Jesus and weeps, and eventually lowers herself so low, low enough to wipe dirty feet with her hair. She undoes her glory to wash the feet of Jesus. Jesus turns to her, and he, in a way, he centers her. She's on the margins and the edge of the story. He turns and says, this is where the action is. What she's doing. I want to reorient the room around her and what's happening then in this moment. What's she doing? What, she, what is she bringing? What, what in this matters so much to Jesus that he would ennoble it and elevate her actions as the needed thing? What is this woman doing? She's doing a lot of things. She's interrupting, she's not waiting for permission, she's anointing Jesus. In John's gospel, this story is right before Jesus goes to the cross. So is she anointing him for burial? Or is she anointing him like a king, a coronation? I don't know. She's bringing a costly offering. In, other, uh, in the other gospels, there's an argument about how wasteful this perfume dumping is. Uh, there's a mention of 300 denarii. And the assumption is that one denarii would equal... Uh, like one fair day's wages. One day of fair wages. Yeah, that's how, how it go. So like a year's worth of a good salary. She's just poured out here. So it's costly. She's attending. She's worshiping. She's hosting. And Jesus points out in the following verses all the ways that she's hosting. Verse 45 little. She's hosting. Foot washing, kissing, attending. And Jesus calls out the lack of hospitality by this contrast saying, you did not, but she. You did not, but she. So there's a contrast, two postures we could say in worship. She bows, they recline. She's preoccupied by adoration. They're preoccupied by arguments. She disregards decorum for devotion. They honor optics for respectability. She extravagantly pours out her love and they cautiously measure their theology. Do you see this woman, Jesus says. This woman who does not wait for permission. Who isn't looking to those around her to determine how she's going to come. Who approaches in courageous weakness. Has little concern for reputation maintenance. And has a concern for one thing and that is showing up to love Jesus. The woman, the woman, not the men, is the one who truly sees who's in the midst. She's the one who perceives that God is in this place. And why? Because she's hosting because she knows how much she's been hosted. She knows how much she's received the hospitality of God. She loves because he loved her first. And this is what Jesus says. If you've been forgiven much, you're going to love much. And if you've been forgiven little, you're going to love little. There's a correlation. Your perspective of what God's done to you in your life. How much you've received. There's going to be a correlation of what flows out. So when I find rest in God, when I find that God is the place I can fall apart, find sanctuary and joy, then worship springs. When I remember, when I reconnect the story of my life with the goodness of God in my personal history, devotion comes out. And when I see my deep need and how Jesus has met that need, gratitude flows. This is what's fueling her worship. This is what fuels all worship. And it's always this movement. Revelation plus response. Revelation plus response. So if there's little response in my life, it's because there's little revelation. Because I'm not perceiving. Because I'm not seeing. If my love is weak, it's because my memory is weak. If my devotion is flowing at a trickle, it's because my vision is dim. My worship ain't happening. What I need most, once again, is just to see the person who I'm beholding. There's so much here in Luke 7 about practicing worship. But I want to just offer a quick summary and make a transition here. But quick summary. Jesus sees you and welcomes you. I think this is really good news. He sees the core of your heart. He sees this week what you're carrying. He sees the ambiguity that you're wrestling with. Jesus sees you and welcomes you to a person in this room. Sees you, knows you, knows your fatigue. And regardless of the welcomes that you've received in this week, just to be reminded, you're welcome. If you've been on the poor end of some welcomes this week, know that that the welcome of God in Christ is full, rich, unending. Jesus sees you and welcomes you. Knows the fullness of your history. And Jesus values the offering that you bring, however small. Maybe sometimes the offering is, just, offering is just getting here. Maybe the offering for you has been staying in the room, staying in this church. Maybe the offering is embodied. You're like, I'm, I'm not going to wait for my emotions, so I'm just going to call my whole being to be open before God. I don't care what people think of open hands in worship. They can say I'm a charismatic. I don't look to the left or the right, right? I don't. I'm not looking to people to determine how I'm going to show up. Okay, maybe your offering is um, has been in obscurity. I just want to name the offering that the lead team has been putting in, as they've very graciously given me a sabbatical, a total gift, and I'm very thankful to this church that we have that in place, three months of sabbatical. Plus, one month of holidays beside it. So, a four month window here after 10 years of ministry in Vancouver. So grateful. So grateful for the lead team and the staff team who have been serving in obscurity, multiple, multiple hours and much, much weight. And I just want to say to you all, I'm so honored to serve with you. And Jesus sees your offering. <laughs> Lastly, Jesus prioritized a hosting of his presence, however desperate. It doesn't have to be pretty. Doesn't ha- um, there's just no decorum in that moment, which I love. It's a full-on interruption. And, and Jesus prioritizes what she's doing in that moment. So Richard Foster says, To worship is to experience reality, to touch life. It is to know, to feel, to experience the resurrected Christ in the midst of the gathered community. So what's happening on a Sunday morning? I think it's, it's similar to what's happening around those types of tables. What's happening is that, first of all, there's a kind of hospitality being hosted by the presence of God. And then we're growing to learn how to host that presence. And so if that's what's happening here, or at least it's one of the things that's happening here, then there's all kinds of possibility. Like... How might I come into this place if, if it's about hospitality? My, uh, maybe you've seen him around this place. My twin, Zach. Um, if, you, if, if you don't know who I'm talking about, you got the rest of the sermon just to scan uh, the crowd. It's pretty obvious. Um, <laughs> but Zach... Hosted my family over for brunch, which as you saw, is, there's many. So the Odegaards guards don't often get invited just because that's a hard feat of hospitality. Six very hungry humans. But to show up at Zach's and, and the, the thought given that it's going to be a while until brunch is served. And so there's some very carefully sliced orange wedges in a very nice bowl. Set on the table. But beside that bowl is an empty bowl with one orange slice that's been eaten. And the peel is just left in the bowl as to say, this is where your peels go. Okay? Now, that's thoughtful hospitality. He's given thought because we might not know where the peels go. And until we see, that's where they go. Now, there was many other parts to his hospitality that we were touched. There's preparation. There is care. There is thoughtfulness. There is attunement to delight and extravagance, not cheap bacon. Good stuff, right? So when we're on that end of hospitality, what does that do? It goes, well, when can we have Zach over? I want to do the bowl thing, maybe with pistachios, and we'll put the <laughs> pistachio thing there. Um, it, it, it evokes more hospitality and on and on and on the cycle goes. So really, at its most simple and beautiful essence, the heart of worship is receiving the welcome of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit and to extend that welcome back to God. Saying, in my life, in this moment, in this decision, in this wreckage, in my joy, in my apathy, I am once again welcoming you. I am learning how to host you. I'm I'm learning how to be hosted by you. And on and on it goes. What fueled this woman's worship was her view. That her view was on, she was remembering how much she'd been forgiven and loved by Jesus And that's made me think of a verse that just keep going over and over and over again. Romans 12, 1. In view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. In view. Keeping keeping the the camera frame focused. In view of God's mercy. Oh yeah, right. God's mercy. God is better than I've been giving him credit for. God's mercy. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at uh, Genesis 3 and how the foundational sin of the world is eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's, that's really important because what happened in that moment keeps happening. An overstepping of boundaries to play the role of God. Uh, uh, overstepping to the impulse to put myself at the center and to eat from the tree is to assume that I know good and evil, and it's my role to judge the world from here. To look out. So, in my view, is judgment. In my view, is calculating and measuring, and boundaries and boxes, and sorting and labels. And I know exactly where to put you. I've heard people like, Yeah, yeah I know, I know that. That's a different view in view of God's mercy. Okay, let's, I wasn't sure if we're going to do this. Let's do this. Okay, I need some volunteers. I need six people who don't mind being up front and who can, this isn't drama per se. (laughs) Am I going to get anyone with this lead in? Probably not. Um, I just need six people. Okay, I got two. Okay, Eva, okay. Two more. Yep. Okay. Maybe a couple more ladies. Thank you, Kara. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Okay. So, in pairs of two. So, this was a... I I was at a workshop on Bowen Island. And you got partners. And we we did this... It was after lunch. And and we did this exercise where we were moving around the room. We're not going to do that. But we're contrasting the difference between seeing with judgment and seeing with curiosity. And so what I want you to do in your pairs, decide which of you are gonna be the embodier, and which one of you is gonna be the receiver. So just decide quickly. Okay. Oh, we got some rock, paper, scissors going here. (laughs) Okay. So who here is embodiers? Okay, okay, all in the right, that's helpful. Okay. So what, what I want you to do, embodyers, is even now as I'm talking, start dialing up memories, feelings of judgment. What it feels like to judge someone, how to look on someone with contempt. You can, you, if you want to, dial up a memory of of uh, where you've held contempt in your heart, and where you. And so what you're going to do here is you're going to pull you're going to pull that up, and however you want in your body to embody that, not touching the other person. Respecting their space, but try and embody judgment to that person. Uh, we're gonna and hold that for around ten seconds, and then we'll we'll pause. Okay. So on the count of three, get in your pose, however you want to, however you want to be, and embody judgment. One, two, three, and receivers look at them. Come on, Judgers, pour it out, pour it out here, Ben. (laughs) Julia, you're smiling. Yeah, it's hard, I know. (laughs) Okay, all right, let's relax. Okay, first of all, Judgers, what was that like? As you're holding that contempt judgment in your body, what was that like? You didn't like it. Why? Because it's not a good feeling. It's not a good feeling. Yeah. What was it like for you? So it was hard to like look at someone who I have. Like I, I like Kara. You like Kara, yeah. And to, like, and, and to think like, oh, I don't know, just to try to like judge her was weird, and I couldn't think of a memory, so I laughed. You couldn't think of a memory, yeah. How about for you, Ben? Well, I thought of a real memory, so I felt really gross. <laughs> so it wasn't gross towards David because I liked David, but I was like thinking of a real memory, how I felt in that moment. Yeah. And I was like, I don't want to be here. I don't like you. You're in a box, yeah. and I can disregard you for all these reasons. Yeah. Receivers, what was it like for you to be on the receiving end of this embodied judgment? What was it like for you, David? Um, it's hard not to laugh. It was really hard not to laugh, just because I know that this is yeah fake. i know i know that this is fake yeah. but um receiving judgment is hard um and i i hate it yeah and uh, so yeah that, that that's yeah it was difficult to receive it here yeah uh, i felt like i could receive it like a joke, but receiving it in general is very hard yeah. so yeah yeah that's good that's a good word how about, yeah i think for like a split second i actually like went on the defense, because I was surprised. I was like, oh, this is fun. Then I looked, and I was like, mm. And then I became like, oh, I need to like match that. So I was like, mm. So like, and then I judged her. So yeah. I think that's the story that oh. yeah. There's a bit of power in this 12-year-old here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, sweetheart. Yeah. What, what about for you, Kara? It made me feel a little bit defensive. Yeah. I felt like she was mimicking me, and it made me feel weird. OK. So we, we all heard that, and hopefully we'd say, yeah, I know that. It's hard. It's gross. I felt defensive. Okay. Now, embodyers. Receivers, same role, but embodyers, I want you to embody curiosity. Wherever, wh- however you want to go, whatever posture that looks like, however you want to hold your face, if you want to... If you want to bring up a memory of something that you're, you've been curious about or you genuinely are curious about, I want you to try and bring that as much as you can into your body and pour that out on the person standing beside you in three. Okay, three and face each other. Okay, one, two, three. Oh, those are some big eyes. That's wonderful. Okay, five more seconds. Just pouring out curiosity. Who is this person? Okay, great. All right. So for curious, curious people, what was that like to pour out curiosity this time? Yeah. Instead of gross, it feels really good. Yeah. And it and the focus. I didn't. I wasn't even thinking about myself. I was thinking about him. Interesting. Yeah. I liked that better <laughs> yeah just nice to look at Kara like that yeah <laughs> yeah it's a little more in line with the relationship yeah, yeah. okay receivers what was that like that was way nicer yeah. yeah yeah okay i still felt a bit cautious but in a good way <laughs> <laughs> what I mean. Sure. After what you've been through. Yeah, yeah. yeah after what you've been through. Yeah. I felt like... So, so it, was it hard to make the switch from judgment to curiosity, or what was the caution around? Uh, I mean, if, yeah, Eva's head was just like this, and I think if any human looks at you like that, like, you're like, huh? But she was smiling, too, kind of, in a yeah. kind of creepy, but yeah. nice way. Yeah, so, yeah. I have an yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was good. And I felt like curiosity kind of it made me curious. Mm. Just, just, his, just his action of, of looking at me that way, I kind of thought, oh, why are you? I felt, it made me curious. Yeah. He had a smile on his face. It gave me a smile on my face. So I felt like I mimicked him. I didn't really mimic, I didn't mimic this. Mm. I, but I, I, I felt like I could mimic the curiosity. Awesome. Can we thank these six? Thank you. <laughs> I think, I think curiosity is a derivative of mercy, I think they're very much related. We talked about what it's like to experience curiosity does something different than when I experience judgment. Just a rhetorical general question for all of us, what does receiving mercy do to you? What are the affects when you've been a recipient of mercy? When you thought you were going to get one thing, and you got kindness, or welcome, or respect, or delight. I don't know if you have a memory of when you've been the recipient of mercy, but maybe, hopefully, you know just in general what that does to you. Does anyone want to be just brave enough to say out loud, what does receiving mercy do to you? What is the effect of that? Thaws? Amazing, great. Thaws? It's humbling. A weight lifted. Relief? Brings gratitude. feels active. Hmm. I like that. It's active. Yeah. Ah. Huh. Anyone else? Yeah. It's inclusive. it's inclusive. Yeah. What else does it do to you? Break down. Breaks down defenses. Yeah. Dies below the surface and makes you feel seen. One of the things I think about in my experience when I receive mercy, I would say a softening occurs. Come under a waterfall of mercy, a softening occurs. I keep mercy in view for me, for you, for us, for this city, a softening occurs. This is what Jesus says will happen. Those who've been forgiven much, received a lot of mercy, will love much. By continuously coming under the waterfall of mercy, I am softened and I become a soft place for other people. I think we're truly yearning for these kinds of spaces, soft places for one another. We need soft places for hard conversations, soft places for the hard conversations we are and will have around our LGBTQ inclusion process. Soft places for hard conversations about racism. Soft places for hard conversations that happen around my family's dinner table. Soft conversations for when you you find yourself at a meal with people who voted the exact opposite of you in the last election. We need soft places for hard conversations where hospitality and healing can move into our deep divisions. The places where we can hold acceptance for one another even if we do not hold agreement. Padre Tuama, an Irish poet, has a phrase for this. The translation in the Irish is, you are the place where I stand on the day when my feet are sore. There's a robust softness that mercy creates in the way we relate to each other. When we encounter a person, we're like, I could rest here. I could rest here. So in view of God's mercy, by receiving mercy, I can become mercy. By viewing the tender kindness of God, then a community can start to preview this prophetic tenderness in a society that knows so little. Softness. So if the essence is to love God and to love my neighbor, if those can't ever be separated, then it's just about receiving the love of God in order to love God and my neighbor back. In view of God's mercy, keep attending, keep focusing, keep practicing mercy. And it's in Christ where God's mercy, where we view God's mercy in full bloom. Here's a person moving Relating, interacting with embodied mercy. I want to close here with one more story from Scripture. This is John 8. Uh, This is a well-known story. This describes Jesus encountering a mob that is ready to stone a woman caught in adultery. And this text highlights in one text, in a way many other texts, we see the way of Jesus, I think, really clearly here. It crystallizes what it means, I think, to be among those who are hurting, victimized, confused, and more. I think there's a lot to see here. What do we see in this, ver- this story? First of all, see the woman. This woman has been made an object upon which the wrath of the mob is being directed. So in the midst of this spectacle, Jesus is asked, should this woman be stoned as the law of Moses commanded? And so Jesus is getting drawn in. The the text says trapped. He's getting trapped into a theological argument. What are you going to do, Jesus? Whose side are you on here? Jesus doesn't see the polarities. Doesn't see the game that's at foot here. The ideological gridlock. Jesus, first of all, sees the woman. I think as we want to grow in mercy... This is an invitation for us to see the woman, to see those who have long been on the receiving end of this kind of threat and this kind of judgment, to see the woman, and to see people groups like this woman, and to see yourself in this woman. There's a lot to see here, to see your own shame and your own need, your own isolation. That moment when your fears are realized and you are exposed. I think there's deep identification to be found in seeing the woman. We're also invited to see the mob. See the mob. See them and their commitment to being right. See the mob full of righteous indignation, ready to do the wrong thing for the rightness of their belief ready to do the wrong thing to even obliterate someone. So seeing the mob requires unbelievable honesty to say, in what ways have I been oppressed and what ways am I participating as oppressor? Who do I want to throw stones at? It's easier to see the woman and to see myself there. It's harder and more daring to see myself in the mob? Who do I want to throw stones at? What kinds of people do I want to rid the world of? What viewpoints do I want to see destroyed just on YouTube? What viewpoints do I want to see destroyed intellectually, figuratively, or physically? Whose demise do I quietly cherish? So it takes radical courage to face oneself in a way to see that the stone throwers are not just them, but also me. Who do you want to throw stones at? NDP, Green Party, Conservatives, those Christians who hold an affirming view on LGBTQ inclusion? Perhaps those backwards traditionalists? Allow me to use a few labels here to make the point. Is it the social justice warriors or is it those uh, Jordan Peterson devotees? How has what's been going on in Alabama in the last couple of weeks, how has that been going on in you? Are there any stones around your feet? To be clear, I'm not talking about anger. I'm not talking about holding strong conviction. I'm not talking about lopping the edges off of those conviction. And I am not diminishing the effects of some of the viewpoints I just named. I'm talking about stones. And the ability to throw them is way too easy on online comment boards, at the back of church conversations, at my own table, with my friends. Stones can be all kinds of things. Stones can be Bible verses. Quotes, links, PDFs. Stones can be pejoratives of every variety. It's easier to identify with the woman. It's way harder to identify with the mob. I've been reading a guy, Dan White Jr., and he's been noting how the polarization of our time, the the massive amounts of stone throwing that are happening in our cultural moment, he says, really, he thinks is rooted in fundamentalism. And he describes it this way, fundamentalism is not what we believe, it's how we hold our beliefs. It's absolutism in knowledge It's self-righteous in spirit. It's combative in dialogue. It's us versus them in orientation. It's demonizing other groups. It's policing ideological borders, using shame to control and ostracize. Just hold that on the screen. and, and, And I think this is something we need to name in our moment. One can be a conservative fundamentalist and a progressive fundamentalist. Indeed, it's fundamentalism that fuels our polarization on the right and the left, whatever the issue. It's fundamentalism that does the damage. And so ours is a time where our public discourse is very much animated by the spirit of the day, by the spirit of the age. And I think that animating spirit is fundamentalism. And now would be a good time for an exorcism. Because our world is bruised, divided, bunkered, Deeply bunkered by stone throwing. So see the woman, see the mob, but also let's see Jesus who walks right into the middle and into the center. And this is what Jesus does. He hunches down low. The text says twice that he bent down and he stooped down. Sometimes Jesus is so low, he's easy to miss. Just say that again. Sometimes Jesus goes so low, it's easy to miss. Jesus goes underneath all the haughty glances. Jesus goes underneath the threats. Jesus hunches down, goes low. And what does he do? He writes in the sand. He waits. He draws. We don't know. Some think he draws the names of the people in the mob. Some thinks he draws a scripture verse. I don't know what he drew. But What's he doing? He's so quiet. But make no mistake. He's inserting himself in the center and forcefully subverting and dismantling the whole thing. Note, Jesus does not roll the woman a few stones. Like, get ready, it is go time in three, two, one. Or, you deserve, you deserve. I mean, we're talking stones in the teeth. You deserve it. He doesn't do that. He just dismantles. He doesn't go who's right and who's wrong. Right. He just shuts it all down. And he says, those of you without sin, throw the first stone. What's he doing? He's getting the mob in touch with their need for mercy. They forgot. It wasn't in their view anymore. He's bringing the word of the Lord that cuts through every manifestation of self-righteousness. He is subverting judgment by mercy in a gathering of people. In view of God's mercy. Here is mercy in the flesh triumphing over judgment. Here is mercy in the flesh standing in a gathering of people bringing the gospel. And who's the gospel for? It's for the woman and the mob. The gospel is for the oppressed and the oppressor. Both stand in need. It's when we see Jesus and encounter him once again in our midst with mercy, something happens. A softening happens. The the sound of stones dropping happens. I I think there's enough stone flinging, don't you? Just this week, I I don't know what the internet is except for stone flinging. Uh, What's needed, I I I mean what's needed would be, I think, a community of people who are desperate enough to say, we need help because we are like everyone else out there. And religion has has actually maybe not helped. Religion hasn't made us any better. It might have made us worse. And we need help because we are addicted to stone throwing. And to say, my name's Lance. I'm a stone thrower. I'm addicted to being right, thinking I'm right, needing others to be wrong so I can be right. A community that is so desperate to say, it's not the world that needs salvation, it's us. We need Jesus in the center To keep sneaking in, to keep going low, to keep breaking us open, to defend those in the vulnerable position and to subvert those who are abusing power. We need Jesus to dismantle the binaries of left and right, traditional and progressive, and us and them. To come in and just to shut it all down, we need presence, we need subversion, we need mercy. So this is about becoming a community that is, isn't founded on agreement because real relationships never are. I deeply disagree with some of Paul Stapleton's... Um, well, how can I bring this out into the open now? And yet, he, I just dearly love him. I'm not naming anything, Paul. Um, yeah. Yeah. A community that isn't founded on agreement, but is, a, is founded on affection. And if I don't have it, there's one who's rich in love. A community that drops the stones and drops the defending game and drops playing the role of God and takes up the call to radically love my enemy. A community that not only drops the stones and walks away, though that's needed for a time. And that's what happens in this story. Drops the stones, but stays. Drops the stones and stays in the room. That stays and gets curious about those I do not understand, about those I deeply disagree with, and says, will you forgive me? And says, can you tell me your painful stories and I'll tell you mine? And says, might we become a soft place for one another? And... Might we use these stones for something else? Perhaps we could make something here. We got any masons in the crowd? Okay, we don't. Then let's just do it on our own. Maybe we could just construct something here together. I don't know. Maybe a meeting place. Maybe a place that is founded on this type of encounter. Uh, we could say it's a house of mercy. A place where we meet because the living God meets us in our meeting, and a place where these stones are transfigured into a table. We could make that. We are making that. This is what's happening. I want to contend. This is what's happening. This is what it's worth showing up for and being seen. We tend to the presence of Christ at this time table so that we can tend to it at all of our other tables. We look for Christ in this circle and the full spectrum of disagreements that exist just in this room. We look for Christ in this circle so that we can tend to his presence in all of the other circles we inhabit. We receive mercy in these moments so that we might become mercy in the moments to come in this week. What's going on here? What's happening in a Sunday morning gathering? Friends, we're practicing mercy. I want to say a prayer here. This is from Johnny Baker. Uh, so say this prayer and then we'll come to the table. Yeah, it's keep going at the end of the slides. I think it's in there. Yeah. It's a prayer called Soft Eyes. May the God who is community be with us as we seek to be a community. And may God bless our dreams and may God shatter our dreams. May God help us to be real and to find depth and weakness and brokenness. And may God help us to face and grow through conflict rather than pretend by being nice. May we look at each other through the soft eyes of respect and compassion rather than the hard eyes of criticism and condemnation. May God help us let go of control and the need to fix one another. May God help us discover we are needy in our own souls and give attention to our own hearts. And may God grant us the gift of an extraordinary love that flows from the heart of God that covers a multitude of wrongs. Amen.